again. We keep in mind the questions of this morning on this last day of the year of our Lord's 2017. We may reflect on the past, on its regrets, its losses, and also maybe its good moments, its tender moments, its joys. And then on the future, maybe we are full of optimism, ambitions, hopes, and we see for us exciting challenges. But then there also may be fears, uncertainties, and miseries. And then, as we noticed this morning, it is the time that you reflect on time, which is this this difficult-to-grasp concept that is always here and then it's gone. And I think it also makes us stand back and reflect on the larger questions of life. Maybe just for a moment, this time of the year. Where are we from? Where are we going to? What are we here for? And what drives the decisions that we make in our life? What purpose? What guidelines? And this morning we heard a little bit about the question, where are we from? And we looked at creation. What does that tell us? And tonight we will look at where are we going to? And what does that tell us? And that is why we read these last chapters of the last book in the Bible in Revelations. And of course these chapters are well known. And like the beginning of Genesis, they are a battlefield, a battlefield of different views on the end time. And it's also not so easy, because the last chapter of Revelations most definitely is figurative language. So then again, as we try to do it this morning, we will ask ourselves three questions. What, so what, now what? What does the prophecy actually tell us as we go through the text as we found it? But then we can't stand still having heard what the story tells us. We need to ask what are the consequences of that story? So what? What are the conclusions and the implications of what we have now understood the story of recreation to be? And then there is, of course, the the last and final question. Now what? Having understood what the consequences are, what are we going to do? Are we going to carry on as we did before? Or are we actually changing our views on the world and maybe take a different approach in our life, and do we, let have, do we let it have an impact on our daily life? As from next week on, we will be again living with all the din and joy of the festivities behind us, and we are back to normal life. And I would like, in the attempt to answer these three questions, to summarize for you the evening, the the message of God's word as follows. We are, as we were this morning, on a journey from garden to city, from paradise to paradise. But this evening we focus on the end of that journey, not on the creation but on the recreation. 
And we know three things. What, what does the recreation prophecy tell us? The so what? God comes with justice and joy. And then now what? We are going to be living our life looking forward to his presence and perfect peace. So we are on this journey from garden to city and we reflect this evening on the recreation. And the first question is, what does the recreation policy actually say? Well, already the prophet Isaiah, in the part that we read about 700 before Christ, in this chapter 51, foretold the restoration of Jerusalem and Zion in language that referred to creation. We saw it in the verses 3 to 4, where he makes a reference to Eden and the desert of the, and the garden of the Lord. And then again in verse 13a, where he refers to the Lord as the, your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And he also pronounced in that section already the coming of the Lord with justice, righteousness, and salvation. Now, that prophecy was addressed to Israel, in the first instance, probably looking at the exile. But then in chapter 65, he already broadens this prophecy beyond the people of Israel to include the whole world. We could read that in verse 17 and 25, when it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And then again in verse 25, he says, And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and thus shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Clearly, the prophet is already looking forward to something that is not going to take place in this world. And he does so in language that is echoed nearly verbatim in the last chapters of the Bible in Revelations. So we do have some help from the Old Testament, but still, to understand what this prophecy actually tells us is challenging, because the imagery is often expressed in figurative language, and not to be understood literal, and is full of allusions and echoes of the Old Testament, Isaiah, as we mentioned, but also Ezekiel and others, which adds to its meaning and deepens its meanings, but doesn't make it easier. But at the same time, this New Testament prophecy is moving beyond the Old Testament. Now, tonight the time is short, and therefore we will try to take a helicopter view of our prophecy and hopefully focus on the highlights. So stay with me as we are traveling through our text very briefly tonight. There are in the first place in chapter 20, the verses 11 to 15, we read about the judgment of all it comes. The judgment of all comes. After Satan roamed the world and was reigned in, then the final judgment it comes. And we see a white throne probably indicating holiness, and on that throne we see God. And the world, the next verse says, as we know it comes to an end. And all the dead, wherever they are, are raised and appear before that throne to be judged. All. From the inaccessible sea and from the ground where they were buried. And those who do not belong to Jesus, 
who are not in the book of life, which we know from chapter 13, verse 8, are the ones that belong to Jesus, are judged on their deeds and condemned. The first death, our text tells us, which is the separation of body and soul, and the place where these dead dwell, Hades, will be no more. But the second death is their destiny, the final and eternal rejection from God's presence. Those judged will not be on the new earth or in the new city. And then in chapter 1, 21, the verses 1 to 5, it says, the new Jerusalem comes. Because the new Jerusalem comes and God's people will be there. They will be with God and God will be with them. That's the Old Testament formula so often used. And after or during this judgment, John sees coming the new earth and the new heaven, heaven and earth together, indicating, like in Genesis, the total created universe. And also in different metaphors here described as the holy city or the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem in the Old Testament, of course, being the holy city where God dwelled. The word used here for dwelling, the dwelling of God, is actually tabernacling. And they there, God was present still in the form of his kainah, his glory in the temple. But this Jerusalem is new. The emphasis in verse 5 is new, I make, is the Jerusalem. It is not new as in other, like in a new development, but as in brand new, like you can have a new car from an existing model. But it also tells us it's not a repair job. It's new because of the damage the fall did in causing all the misery sin has brought into this world. But it says that will be no more. The newness will be there for all a dramatic and profoundly radical experience because we read tears, death, crying, and suffering will be no more. It is just a few words, but what an impact, what a change, what relief, and what endless joy. And then, if we continue our journey through this text, chapter 21, the verses says to 8, John tells us, into this new Jerusalem, only the faithful will come. Because John now reaffirms what he already earlier said. The coming of the new Jerusalem is certain. God himself, in our text, confirms it. And he who was there at the beginning of creation is there at the end that is recreation. And the first thing that came at his invitation, the words are verbatim nearly from Isaiah 55, verse 1, they will be there. They that persevered, the overcomers is what our text says, which in a way is a refrain of what he has said in the letters at the beginning of Revelations. And they will drink from the water of life, which probably, if we look at Isaiah 49 or John 4, represents salvation and eternal life. But the others, as mentioned earlier, will not be there. It will be God and his people. And then in chapter 21, the verses 9 to 21, there is the beauty and the size of the city to come. In metaphoric language, John then continues to describe the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. 
And without going into detail, the summary is, it's shown with the glory of God. If you look through the text, you will see that brilliance, beauty, purity, safety, openness, completeness, perfection, and unity are all referred to, hinted at, or described in poetic vision. The harmony and the beauty of the golden cube far surpasses the Holy of Holiness, also a cube of Solomon's temple, although it was overlaid with gold. And its size, he had described as 12,000 stadia, which is probably in excess of 1,500 miles, approached the boundaries of the known world at the time, and it assures us God's city is large enough to accommodate all. And then in chapter 21, verses 22 to 27, it says, The glory and the honor of the world will, God, will come to God as its temple. You see, Solomon's temple was no longer necessary. The building where access to God's presence was fenced off is not there. And the institution where mediation and atonement was performed for the people by the priests is absent. For God is now directly accessible. His face is shining directly on his people. And the sun and the moon, so often revered as gods, they are no longer necessary. He is their light, and in his light all the nations will walk. And the gates of the city are forever open, and the threat of the night will be no more. And all the glory and honor, I think meant is homage rather than stuff and things, will be brought to him. God will finally be recognized as the Lord of all and all creation. And nobody, nothing else, not the Babel Tower builders, not the God and creation denying professors, and not the worship requesting dictators, and not the utopia seeking philosophies, will be able to muscle in on that honor, is what verse 27 tells us. And then in chapter 22, the verses 1 to 3a, an ecological transformation will come. We read in Genesis that the river was flowing from paradise, but in the fall and in its curse, Genesis 3, verse 17, cursed will be the ground, access to the garden of God and to communion with God was lost, and the tree of life was bare apart, and creation, we read, was cursed and groaning. And life would be a struggle. Because Adam is told, in pain you shall eat, and by the sweat of your brow it will be. What we see in our text is a complete transformation, because also nature will be recreated. We read about the water of life, a river crystal clear. We read about trees of life, generating twelve crops in each of the twelve months. And there are leaves for healing and a curse that is no longer there. It is a picture of everlasting abundance. And what a difference with the ecological horrors of exploitation and pollution and mismanagement and greed that at times we can see around us. And then there is in our text in the last two verses also a social transformation that will come. It is not only nature but also society that will be recreated. We already heard earlier that tears crying and suffering, which resulted from the fall, will be no more. 
And here John confirms that the creation order will prevail. God will be with his people, and they will serve him, and consequently there will be no more darkness and no night. The people will walk in the light and reign with God forever. And then also, and finally in our text, he confirms in, verse, in 21 verse 5b and then again in 22 verse 6, all this will truly come. And we should note his stark and repeated warnings in the verses 21 verse 5 and 22 verse 6, and then later again it's repeated in 22 verse 10 and in 18 to 19. Because whatever the opinion leaders may oracle, and whatever the experts may declare, and whatever the chattering classes may waffle or warble, and whatever the politicians may tweet or twitter, and whatever you may think is likely or not, these words, John tells us, are trustworthy and true. And all these things will soon take place. So that is what the recreation prophecy tells us. A vision of God's future for the world. A window on what lies ahead of us as we look towards the coming times. And then there is the question, the follow-up question, so what? We have understood the story, so what? What is the relevance of this prophecy? And what, is the, what are the consequences of what we heard? And what are the implications for us today? Well, in view of the time, we're going to be brief here. But the overriding and the overwhelming message here is that this world that we live in, and in which we are about to enter into a new year, with all its challenges and its opportunities, and with all its good and bad moments, and with all its highlights and low points, and with all its fun and darkness, and all its hopes and its anxieties, <clears throat> it will disappear. And not only that, it will make way for something else. And if your horizon coincides with this world, and if you believe that it all ends in death, and if you cannot or do not want to reflect upon anything beyond the boundaries of the empirical, you have a serious problem with short-sightedness. It does not matter whether you are a renowned philosopher or whether you are a famous physics professor or simply somebody who doesn't want to do much beyond the pursuit of one's own happiness. You are blind to reality. And your name may be Hawkins or Dawkins, or you may be like Andy Cap or Alex from the city, but the reality will catch up with you, and the short-sightedness will be exposed. That is the implication, the consequence of our text, because it tells us that the Lord will come with justice and with joy, with joy and with justice. You see, justice, there is much injustice around us in the world today, and no doubt there will be much more in 2018. And rulers and authorities all over the world oppress and they plunder their people. And little Hitlers in the workplace can make life miserable. And criminals may have a whale of a time because the judicial system is incompetent, corrupt or both. And it can be grinding and it can be grating and it can be aggravating. And there may not be much that we can do about it. But change it will. Three times our text states this. First, 
in chapter 20, the verses 11 to 15. All will be judged according to what they have done. The statement is as simple as it is comprehensive. There is no longer any protection in power and position. And there is no hiding in the darkness of secrets and no escape in the twists and turns of a legal system. The only protection there is is if your name is found in the book of life. And earlier in Revelations, in chapter 13 and 17, we are told your name is in the book of life if you belong to the Lord Jesus. And this message of coming justice is then repeated in chapter 21, verse 8. And again, for the third time, the results are confirmed in verse 27. That nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, what exactly the fiery lake of burning sulfur is, I don't know. The language in our text is largely figurative language. It is clear from our text that it entails life away, away from God's presence, outside the holy city and the new earth. And maybe it is being resurrected to the life that those people always wanted to live, a life without God, without God, and without the restraining power of his common grace. As the saying goes, Homo homini lupus, and that would surely be hell. But then our text spends much more time on the other major consequence of what the recreation prophecy tells us, and that is joy. It's not doom and damnation and eternal judgment that take up most of the space, but the description of our living with God. And there are repeated and all-encompassing references on what will not be there anymore when God comes. There may, if you look back at 2017, be sad memories, loved, lost ones, opportunities gone, health declined and relationships broken. But, says our text, all the consequences of sin will be gone. There will be no more tears, 21 verse 4. No more death, no mourning, no crying or pain, verse 5. And nothing impure and shameful or deceitful will be there, verse 27. And nothing will be there of the darkness of the night, 22, verse 5. But life, as it was intended at creation in the presence of God, when he walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden, a life in a just beautiful, harmonious, glorious, bright, and new, and light, new creation. And this new world, this new city, it will not come about through the efforts of man, striving for their own utopia, because that has often resulted in bloody nightmares of fascism and communism. But, says our text, it comes down from God, twice, verse 2 and verse 10. And it is the place which shines with his glory, verse 11, and is in his light, verse 23, and again in 22, verse 5. And then finally there is the question, now what? Knowing that God comes with justice and joy, what are we to do today 
tonight, in the new year, and possibly in the many years to come. Well, that was our conclusion from this morning. We may live already in the here and now in his providence and in his praise. And in addition, there is the conclusion of this evening. We may live already today looking forward to his presence and his perfect peace. Man was created to live in an eternal Sabbath rest with God. That is what we read in chapter in Genesis chapter 2. A life where God walked with man in the cool of the garden, in his presence, as it is pronounced with the, or in, with the blessing of Aaron, his face shining upon us. And the mediation and the limitation that came with the temple to bridge the gap between God's holiness and the sinful man, it is no more. God dwells with them without a temple. And with his presence also comes the perfect peace. The sordidness and the anxieties and the agonies of this world have been replaced by a life without any sadness, where the servants of the Lamb will reign. Servants who are reigning. Isn't that an interesting thought? And where the honor and the glory of the world will not be grasped by worldly rulers but brought before God, the true King of creation. We read it in the words of the prophet Isaiah already. And we may live today looking forward to that presence and to that perfect peace. So this morning we reflected on from where and this evening on the where to. But for now, of course, we are in between. And also the writer of Revelations, the Apostle John knew this. And he concludes his book with a stark warning that the Lord Jesus is coming and with an encouragement and an exhortation to stand firm. There is no time to extensively reflect on these last words in chapter 22 in detail, but if we look forward into 2018, we may well summarize them with the words of the hymn, I, the Lord, am with thee. Be thou not afraid. I will keep and strengthen. Be thou not dismayed. Yea, I will uphold thee with my own right hand. Thou art called and chosen in my sight to stand. And then the response, he will never fail us. He will not forsake. His eternal covenant he will never break. Resting on his promise, what do we have to fear? But is all sufficient also for this coming year. Onward then, and fear not, children of the day, for his word shall never, never pass away. Onwards then, into the next year of our Lord, onwards to his coming. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that in your word you tell us that we can live our life today, notwithstanding its difficulties and challenges, in the comfort of your providence and in the joy of praising you 
and that we may do so looking forward to your presence and to your perfect peace. And Father, we ask that you will help us to keep that before us if we meet the challenges of life, also in this coming year, so that we may experience the joy of your providence today and of your peace in the future. And Father, we ask that you be in that manner with all of us individually, but also with us as a congregation, so that we may be in this time a candle on a stand and a city on a hill, where people look to and say that they also would like to share in that joy and in that peace that you bring. We ask it, not because we deserve it, but because of the Lord Jesus. Amen.